we'll just review those verses. And there's a few things he said that, you know, when I taught the uh, high school boys Sunday school, I was always, we'd have church first, and then I'd go into the Sunday school, and, you know, younger men, I would say, okay, what'd you learn in, in the sermon today? And it was a really helpful tool for me to sort of reinforce to them, because, you know, we learn by repetition. So you hear it once, you reinforce it again. And I sort of got into that habit. And every time I would do it, I would say to them, man, it just seems like what he taught today was what I was going to teach in Sunday school. And after a while, I realized, well, it may be just me. You know, maybe I'm just, my mind is focused on my lesson, and I sort of see it in everything of the Bible that is taught. So I think maybe the same thing happened today. But nevertheless, I do want to share a few thoughts with you. In you know, Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And then Shane referenced a few other verses, and he went to Luke 11 and talked about, you know, these people are darkened, their foolish hearts are darkened. I was thinking a lot of John 1, you know, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. He went to Luke 11, verse 34, to reinforce this point. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. And then, like I said, I thought of John 1. And the reason I'm going here is because John 1 talks about the light. Jesus is the light. And there's a witness to the light. You know, John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And the reason I'm going here is because we're going to spend a good amount of time, I think today we'll get to it, talking about John the Baptist and his... Um, I'm sorry, you mentioned my name? Entree, yeah. It went right in the front row, please. <laughs> yes. Right in the front row. Uh, where do we repent? Center, where do centers Front repent? and center <laughs> repentance. I, I, before God, that's it. <laughs> so, hold on moment. Thank I'm you. Sorry, we, sorry for, about that. Forgive me. You're welcome many times. We, we have to uh, realize that God is not the author of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, that's John Hartwell. Um, for those listening and not here. Where was I? I was on Luke 11. Oh, yeah, John 1, excuse me. So, uh, let me get there. We're talking about John the Baptist, who came as a witness to testify to this light, which is Jesus Christ. And he says he's not the light, but he came to testify about it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so today, we will mention John the Baptist and how he testified to the truth of the light which came to us. And so I just say that as a, as a primer for you. Keep that in mind, what John the Baptist came for, testifying about the light, and we'll, we'll circle back around and mention him later. Okay, I wanted to just briefly review last week. We 
briefly introduced uh, the Gospel of Mark, spent most of our time last week talking about the character of the person, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel, and we learned a lot about him, actually, um, in the uh, New Testament account of him. I just want to re review some of that. You remember, we first hear about him in, who remembers where you first hear about Mark? Anybody? It's in Acts 12, when um, Peter is released from prison. Herod's persecuting the church. Peter's imprisoned. He's miraculously released, and he goes to the house of Mary, where all the apostles are congregated, a lot of them. And he knocks on the door, and Rhoda answers, and she says, oh, it's Peter. And she runs in and tells everyone, it's Peter, it's Peter. And anyway, that was Mary's house, and that was John Mark's mother. So that's the first we hear of John Mark, and we assume from that that she was a servant. And she was serving. She was, had people in her home. And so maybe Mark learned some of his servanthood nature from his mother. So that's the first we, we hear about Mark. And then the next we hear about Mark is a chapter later when uh, in Acts 13.5, Barnabas and Paul want to take him on their journey. And they call him a helper. He's a, he was an assistant. He was a minister, Acts 13.5. So they describe him as that. So the point I'm making is Mark is described over and over again in the New Testament several times, very close to the word translated as helper or servant or minister. So he had this in his nature. Uh, and then we, so Mark goes on the first missionary journey, and you remember he, he doesn't finish it. He doesn't complete that journey. We don't know exactly why, but we do know later on when Paul, Barnabas asks Paul to take Mark with him a second time, Paul's pretty um, firm and basically says, no way, no, we're not taking Mark on us. So it seems like he, he just was either weak or tired or didn't have the energy to complete his mission and, and he doesn't complete that uh, trip. Um, so the application we had for that was Mark failed and then we read on in Acts and then some of the other letters, actually the letters to the Colossians and to um, Timothy, Paul is imprisoned, and he's writing, and he says, bring Mark along. He's useful to me for service. So the point was, Mark failed. He was ultimately reconciled. We don't know how, but he was reconciled, and Paul asked for him at the end of his life in his last imprisonment in 2 Timothy. He wrote about Mark in his first imprisonment in two different letters. He said, Mark is here with me. He's useful to me. And then we also noted that Peter wrote about Mark at the end of 1 Peter. Um, and, and Peter wrote 1 Peter at, near the end of his life. It's 1 Peter 5, that last verse. Let me just flip there real quick and read that to you. 1 Peter 5. Yes, that's right. So she who's in Babylon... This is a, a word referring to we in Rome, this church in Rome, chosen together with you, greets you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So he calls him his son. He's Mark. He's with Peter in Rome, ministering sort of at the end of his life. So where on the one hand, Mark seems like a somewhat 
insignificant character in the gospel accounts. We don't read about him at all anywhere in the gospels, except maybe in Mark chapter 14, he may have had a cameo, but wrote himself in there. We'll get to that later. But for the most part, Mark's not visible in the gospels. He seems a minor character in the rest of the New Testament, yet he, I think we proved, was a very significant character in the life of the two greatest apostles that ever lived, Peter and Paul. So um, we were encouraged by that and had several different applications. One, we can learn from failure. God will restore his people, just like he restored Mark. Um, number two, Mark came from humble beginnings, most likely. We don't know anything about him, and he was exalted very, very highly by the Lord, even so high as to write these eternal words of his gospel that he wrote. And um, God's ways are mysterious, and we see how he worked powerfully in Mark's life. We also talked last week about some of the unique features of this gospel. It's the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters. The audience Mark is writing to is probably the Roman Gentiles, and there's evidence for that because, um, well, number one, he doesn't really quote the Old Testament very much at all. He doesn't seem to refer to it at all. He doesn't spell out Jesus' genealogy. That wouldn't be relevant to a Roman Gentile. That wouldn't really resonate with them. So his audience, we believe, was the Gentiles, and he's putting in here a gospel that is just action-packed, showing us Jesus is a suffering servant. And you just see it. When Jesus teaches, Mark doesn't tell us what he taught for the most part. There's a couple discourses, but for the most part, he says, Jesus healed, Jesus taught, Jesus went here, Jesus taught, Jesus healed, Jesus performed miracles. I mean, it is, and we're actually going to read the whole chapter 1 today. And you'll see, it's, it's very action-packed. And the Roman mind would have liked that. So that's just more evidence probably that was his, his particular audience. Uh, he translates Aramaic words. One example, a couple examples. Mark 3.17, it says, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, Boanerges which means sons of thunder. So he translates that word, and he does that several times throughout the gospel. He'll say an a Aramaic word, or, and he'll translate it and tell them what it means. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Another example. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephetha, that is, be open. When they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. So he does this a lot through the gospel. He has also some words that are based in Latin, which would have been well known to the Romans. So just evidence, that's probably who he wrote this to. Okay. So we have who wrote it. We know... Um, Oh, when he wrote it, no one really knows exactly. Probably in the 60s, the late 60s. It's controversial if he wrote it before or after Peter and Paul's martyrdom. Not sure, but probably he wrote it somewhere in the 60s. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of that as we unfold uh, the book itself. And I actually promised last week that this week I would be talking about this issue of what's called the synoptic problem, which is 
the uh, understanding about when the Gospels were written, which Gospels were written first, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. And uh, I've decided not to really teach that as a lesson. We will unfold that as we go through the book. And we'll, we'll, when we compare, for example, different uh, texts from Mark that compare to Matthew or Luke, we'll explore you know, how, how are these so similar yet dissimilar and who, how did that all work. So, uh, but basic summary, I believe Mark was not written first. I think Matthew was written first based on the historical record of the early church uh, fathers. And the criticism, it's called historical criticism, where you look at the texts and try to parse out how these mesh together and if there was uh, dependence or independence on the, the texts. That's, that's um, murky waters. Um, but I guess I just want to state for everybody, I, I think Mark was not written first. I don't think the other writers used Mark and copied on their Gospels. It doesn't make sense that Matthew, who was a first-hand witness of Jesus, would go to Mark's text to write his Gospel about Jesus. So that's just for example. Okay, so when it was written, who was the audience? We know it was the Romans. Other uh, unique features of Mark, lots of vivid detail. We'll see that as we even read the first chapter. Um, sort of when you read it and you see how Mark describes a lot of the emotions of Jesus, the emotions of the people around, some of the coloring of different things, the details of how people were sitting, it makes you think he was actually there. And that, um, but I don't think he was. I think he was not a first-hand witness of Jesus. It's possible he was on the fringes, but I don't think so. And so you would justify that by saying the history says that Mark got his gospel by listening to Peter. So Mark and Peter had a close relationship, most likely. And I think Mark is recording these details because that's how Peter explained it. That's, that's how I would explain that. And uh, overall, you see Jesus as the suffering servant in this gospel. That, that's the overall theme of Mark's letter, or Mark's gospel account. Any other questions about last week that I didn't cover? Okay, so what I'd like to do before we get into this week's study is I'm going to read all 45 verses of Mark chapter 1. Because you'll see. Um, <laughs> this is just such a striking feature of the book, and I think it just comes out best if you just read it through rather than go through four verses at a time. So we'll at least do it once. Okay, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. 
I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, just pause here, you'll see this word immediately, even in this chapter and in the book over and over again, you'll see, hear the word immediately. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going down by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boats mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him. So it's like you take a breath. Jesus wants to get a little rest, right? He, just for a minute away. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. 
So, any comments, thoughts, impressions on that? Look at what he did in one chapter. How many people were really chasing him all over Galilee? How many people did he heal? Demon-possessed, healing a leper, this guy with the convulsions. He's encountering demons. Um, the Lord speaks from heaven about him. He's baptized. So, right? That's all in one chapter. So the image that Mark's painting us of Jesus is, a, is different from the image that you see in the other Gospels. And it's accurate, right? So Jesus is the, is the working, suffering servant. So I guess the first thing we can take away from it is, is an example to us um, where to work hard and to serve the Lord even when it's not easy or convenient. And Jesus is our great example. If you want to get an example of how to serve him, you can see it right here in just one chapter. Any other thoughts on, or impressions on just reading through that, those first 45 verses? Yes. Yeah. As I read it, I almost feel like I'm, I, I'm not anxious really, but you just feel sort of hemmed in, and it's like it forces you to keep reading the immediately. Yeah, and there's lots of them, lots of them. It's almost like Mark just wanted to kind of get the whole first part. Yeah. Consolidated. Yeah. Okay, you know this, but yep. this is what happens, and this happens. I mean, it does give a sense of urgency of... Um, I didn't even think of this till just now, but you know, there's an urgency of our time on earth. We have to sort of immediately start doing things <laughs> and, and not waste time. It doesn't seem like Jesus wasted any time, uh, according to Mark's account. I also keep remembering that, you know, Peter, when I read this, you sort of, I see Peter as having this personality. So again, you just wonder how the Lord blessed Mark with his uh, interaction with Peter. And maybe Mark was similarly wired. I don't know. The Holy Spirit helped him write it, inspired these, but um, I sort of see Peter, Peter bubbling out through the pages too. Don't know. And did he um, use the word Simon, the name Simon for Peter um, in the first part? Isn't that the healing of the mother-in-law? Yes, yeah, that, that's, that's Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, yeah, so that's something to just note. Peter was married um, and he did take his wife with him on his mission trips. So Catholics don't like that fact, but uh, yeah, clearly Peter, Peter was married and, and had a mom. And according to Mark, one of the first healings he did. And then immediately after she was healed, she got up and started serving them. I just found it, you know, because he starts using Peter, you know, naming Peter after, I guess, Christ. Oh, oh, I see. Great point. Yes. Do you think maybe he's he's going through all this action because there's people believing in the will of God, and he kind of knew the God folks did, and how they behaved. I think. I, know, I think yes. That? What she's saying is, do, is, was that partly motivating the way he wrote? Yeah, I think to appeal to that Roman Gentile audience that they would have appreciated the miracle worker, that would have really resonated with them if they knew a, a human was. A miracle worker like this, yep. Active, real human flesh person doing it. I found the whole interesting the, the references to not only healing 
preaching, but casting out demons a couple times, right? Which, mm-hmm. not that the other Gospels don't emphasize that that happened, but it's like all compressed into a period of time. It's like, what was he doing? He was preaching, healing, casting out demons, preaching, healing. Yeah, demons. that's like, right. He seems so active in those things, right, in this first chapter, right? And again, in the other Gospels, it's, it's really spread out, and there's only a few other demons being casted out. But I think here there's three times where there's demons that he's encountering or casting out. Uh, most of them, yes, Mark mentions many miracles, more than the other Gospels, and it's the shortest. So you have this high density of miracles, page after page after page of miracle. What's confusing to me is, I think that his miracles and his authority over demons is, is a means of validation. But at the same time, he, he, he silences the demons. The demons' first order of business is to declare who he is mm-hmm. aloud. And it's almost like he's silencing them, you know, be quiet. Don't, don't tell people who I am. And then he tells the people that he heals, don't tell people what I've done. And so I've, I've, I've kind of heard or thought that maybe it was a controlling of the timing of mm-hmm. his, his ministry, that he wanted to control the information. But, but I was, I'm just kind of confused by him validating who he is by miracles, but at the same time he's trying to control the, the spread of information. So it's like you got both here. He's, mm-hmm. it's like, why do all these things? Just don't heal people. Just stop healing people and then you can really control the information. Yeah, so you're bringing up a hard question for me to answer about why does Jesus say don't tell anybody about the miracles several times. I think it, I put it in the category of his timing of of how he's going to unfold the truth. Pentecost we know came at a certain time and God of heaven ordained it on the exact day millions of years ago. Well, even more than more than so millions of years ago. I just put up to his timing of unfolding his his spirit. And go ahead. And some of the other gospels, doesn't he say, "My time is much yet. My time is not That's right. Time. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mark, John, he mentions it quite a few times. Um, trying to think of the exact verse, but Jesus knew his time had not yet come, and he told him because he knew this is for later. Later on, I'm going to uh, carry out this portion of our ministry. I think timing is a good. Is a good. Especially if the demons, if they want to disrupt Jesus and his ministry and his work and God's plan, mm-hmm. and his if his goal is truly timing, then that's exactly what they would try to to stop. Yes. So they're they're like trying to tell people, they're trying to accelerate things. Yep. This is Jesus. He's the Holy One of God. He's da, 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 da. I don't. I mean, I just put this. Very well, well, also, didn't um, Christ say that? People would want to make him king, so he needed to be able to go places and do things rather than have you know everyone would come and say you know you're the king we're going to make you king we're going to um, yeah so an uprising too and that's probably yeah. a lot of factors. yeah I think I would like put a period on the the statement here to say you know God is in control of who hears the gospel how they respond and how his um, mission will unfold and um, only he knows and I think that we can just have comfort in that and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you verse 38 he said to them let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that mm-hmm. I might preach there also for that is what I have come for 
Mm-hmm. When he heals the leopard, um, he says, you know, don't tell anyone, but the leopard went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but had to stay out in unpopulated areas. So he couldn't, I guess, go out and teach. So his goal was teaching. Yeah. So he wanted to validate who he was, and he did that through miracles, but he wanted to keep it on the lower so practically he could teach, right? Yes. That would be one... Uh, rational consequence of him trying to slow things down is so that he, his goal was to teach, goal was to teach right because ultimately I think God is in control of the timing mm-hmm. of everything yeah so speaking of timing um, we'll go to Mark 1 because this Mark 1 1 I've written it up here on the board and and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? Thought of that verse today too when Shane said it. In my mind all day is thinking the beginning, because this is a well, in any event, here's verse one of Mark. Mark one one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So it's unclear whether Mark is saying like, this is the title of the book. Here's the, this is like the title of my book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Read all 16 chapters, okay? Is Mark saying that? And that's one option. I personally think so, because it's sort of the way Mark writes. So, the, the evidence that, that he's saying this, you know, this is the beginning of the gospel, then the question is, well, why didn't he just write the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does the beginning really mean? I think there's a couple options the re- that he put the word the beginning in there. One is if you look at Acts, chapter 1, the first verse of Acts, where Luke says, my first account, excellent, uh, my excellent Theophilus, let's go there. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. So he's basically saying, the first account was my gospel, book of Luke. And this is sort of my second account. So in other words, he might be sort of saying what Mark's saying, the beginning was the gospel. This continuation is the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's one option, what Mark might be saying. This is the beginning of the account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my gospel account. The other um, reason, that w- or another text that would sort of support that idea is Galatians 4, where Paul says, um, it's verse 4 through 6, and Paul indicates that, that God sent forth his son, Jesus, then it says he sent forth the spirit of his son in verse 6. So he sent forth his son, the beginning, and then he sent forth the spirit of his son, like a continuation of the gospel. That, that's an option that we could accept to explain what um, Mark means here by saying the beginning of the gospel. Some people say, well, did Mark want to write his own version of Acts too? And that just was lost. I think that, that's a thought some people have had. I don't think so. I, I think it's just sufficient to say that Mark is just heralding, here's the beginning of the account of the gospel. Okay? Another way you could take this is to say 
that really verse 1 is leading into verses 2 and 4 or leading into verses 4 and 5. So he's saying the beginning of the gospel is John the Baptist. Right? So, so the beginning of the gospel is the coming of John the Baptist. All the other gospel accounts start by telling us about John the Baptist's heralding of the um, preaching repentance and the baptism of repentance. So is he really just saying here, uh, John the Baptist is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Um, it doesn't matter, really. It can be both. Okay, and I think that's the way I come down on it ultimately is John Mark's announcing the gospel and he's also pointing to, the, to John the Baptist who uh, ushered in Jesus' um, ministry. Uh, I want to point out something else in Acts before we finish this. Acts chapter 10. A lot of people think that Mark used this account in Acts, well, the account in Acts of Peter's saying, Peter's sermon here, is uh, a very, very brief outline of the Gospel of Mark. It's Acts 10, verse 37. I'll well, back up to verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So those who think that probably what uh, Mark's referring to is the beginning of the gospel is John the Baptist, look to this and say, yes, we know he used this sort of as an outline, and the outline here tells us the beginning of Jesus' ministry was the coming of John the Baptist. Luke 16, 16 says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Another verse just reminding us that John came before Jesus. Preaching repentance. And... So two options, we can, we can look at that. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel. Let's talk about that word for a minute. We all know what it means, right? The good news? Uh, it is, okay, if you think Mark was the first New Testament book written, then this would really be the first time this word was ever used in uh, New Testament scripture, the, the Greek word gospel, the evangel. Evangelion, the Greek word. Uh, actually, it's interesting. This word is not even used in Luke's or John's gospel. It's used in Mark, and it's used a few times in Matthew. 
And when you read it in the Gospels, of course, it's often in a context you'll recognize Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel and of the kingdom of God or proclaiming the gospel, teaching the gospel. That, that's how it's used. Uh, it's used many times to describe Jesus' preaching. But if you just had the... But you don't know, what, what exactly does Jesus mean? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's not specific, really, to tell us what exactly that is. We know what it is, right? We know what it is. It is the gospel that Jesus came, died for sins, suffered, rose again, repent, and believe on Jesus. So before we move on, I just do want to clarify for us that the New Testament does tell us actually exactly what the gospel is. And many people think that, you know, it was used in the, the uh, gospel books several times in Matthew and Mark. And as these letters were circulating, later on, that's how those four books came to be called the gospel according to Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. So the word sort of evolved in the early church to mean what it means to us today. Matthew 4, verse 23, if you believe Matthew was the first gospel written, this is probably the first time you can read it in the New Testament. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. News about him spread, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who suffered, and large crowds followed him. That's so that he's Jesus himself preaching the gospel. It's a favorite word of Paul. This word gospel is about 100 times in the New Testament. And about 80 of them are used in Paul's writings. So Paul's the one that really used this word gospel a lot. In a couple verses, I just want to read for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 is a good summary of what the gospel is. Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So that's a nice three verses for us to put in our heads if you want to know what is the gospel. I mean, it's that one half verse. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the simplest. Of course, he rose again. Repent and believe on Christ. Uh, Romans 1, the introduction to this book, is another great summary description for us of the gospel. Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Okay, so the gospel was promised. It was planned through the prophets. So the, in the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures told us about the gospel. The Holy Scriptures told us Jesus was coming. We didn't quite understand it, but they told us concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Great another summary of the gospel. It was planned, it was foretold by the prophets, it's about Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David. He rose from the dead. It was proclaimed himself by Jesus, the gospel. It saves us. It's powerful. It gives us life, and it brings us faith. So this is all words that um, tell us what the gospel really is. It is the good news. It's, 
It's everything that Jesus did on the cross for us. And in 2 Timothy, remember, Paul tells Timothy, join, tells Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So it's all those things. So this book is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Often, yeah. And in fact, Matthew said, well, did Jesus use? Yeah. Um, yes, several times in the New Testament, he says, uh, I proclaim to you the gospel. That's a paraphrase. But there's several verses like that where Jesus himself uses the word. Is there an Old Testament reference to, I mean, is that like, well, like the good news? Yeah, there's a, there's a Hebrew, I think it's two words put together, the good news. Um, Uh, we'll get to it, actually. Um, the message, there's a message coming to us, and I, I can't remember the exact Isaiah, word. Isaiah, it's, it's in, I think it's a lot in Isaiah, chapter 40, and there's Isaiah 3. Yes, right. So what news of good tidings. Referring, oh, Neil, yes, you're walking right into it. Okay. Yeah, hold that thought, because that's, that's where it actually, look at, the, look at Mark, this is where it goes. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this verse 2 through 3 says, uh, in the Old Testament, it was written by Isaiah. There's someone coming to proclaim, to make the paths straight for the Lord. Then John the Baptist appears. So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Anybody know what's interesting about this quote from the Old Testament? Do you know where that's quoted from? Anybody? Malachi is not Isaiah. Oh, no, it's referenced in Malachi, though. So you're right. No, you're right. It is Malachi. So how do we, how do we figure this out? As is written in Isaiah, the prophet, and then he quotes Malachi, the first half of that, in any event. Well, um, So what's going on here is um, the first half of that, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Just flip back a few pages and look at Malachi 3.1. It's a direct quote of that. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Okay, so this is what he's quoting. It's also, while you're there, just flip one page over and look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So in Mark's account, that first half of you know, verse 2 is quoting Malachi 3.1. It's similar to Malachi 4.5 and 4.6. We'll get to this next week, but Luke's account quoting this, he quotes Malachi 4.5 and 6. Just so you know. And we can maybe talk about why that might be, but the point is for here, this is Malachi 3.1, then verse 3 is Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So, don't know why Mark said, Isaiah the prophet says this, and then he quotes Malachi and Isaiah. There's a... I have a little footnote that says, some manuscripts um, say, um, in the prophets, as in plural, instead of Isaiah. Right. Right. So it's possible. So I guess it's possible that Mark meant to say in the prophets. Um, or you could refer to the Isaiah as being more of, a, of two prophets. Isaiah has been more significant. significant. Yeah. Also, um, in the uh, light of, you know, in the Messiah, um, Isaiah 40. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, you know, so he, he took something I think we're related to, and that is the whole of Isaiah, 41, 40, 1 through 5, and he talks about um, a whole bunch of other concepts mm-hmm. that go in there about comforting your people. Yeah. He starts off his, his Messiah. Yeah. I think it's, not. don't know for sure why Mark did it this way. Uh, Maybe because it, it combines Malachi with that's right. Isaiah is more than the I, so. That's how I concluded. That's what other people have concluded. That even basically, what, Isaiah is the thrust of it. It just sort of introduces Isaiah with this with this quote from Malachi. Another thought is it may have been a tract that was that the Jews read at that time that combined those two sayings of prophets, and Mark just quoted that. Um, either way, he gives us Isaiah, and then he just throws in for a little extra. Malachi. That's how I see it. It, it doesn't under, undermine anything he's trying to tell us. Um, but the point being that uh, I think for us and for the Roman people who are reading this, he's just telling them that this was prophesied long ago and there was a person coming before the light, before, to pave the way, and that's going to be John the Baptist. And uh, I wanted today to spend so much time talking about John the Baptist, so we'll have to wait till next week. But, uh, you know, John the Baptist, by the way, his ministry was huge. Some of the historical accounts say it may have been as big as Jesus's ministry. I mean, it was huge. And people were flocking to be baptized for repentance by John the Baptist. It was a very, very big ministry. Um, so, we'll, so we'll just keep that in mind. And, uh, so what we'll talk about next week is really what I wanted to get to today. Just think about it. 
the beginning of the gospel for you, for us. The beginning of it is what? Well, it's repentance. The, 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 before you really can embrace the gospel, you have to have repentance. When I was saved, uh, my testimony sort of changes over the years because my perception of it changes, right? But I when I was saved in college, um, I didn't understand sin really. It was sort of the gospel of Jesus will help me sort of be more full and complete and not have much stress and I can trust him to carry out all things good for my life. That was my version of it. It wasn't accurate. And, um, but then later as I matured, I, I, boy, I, God showed me sin and, and, and a true spiritual repentance that comes to the believer is life-changing, right? And powerful. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit worked, I, w I hope it's okay to say this, as powerfully in John's ministry to bring the Holy Spirit to show people repentance as much as Pentecost, because you need both. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to bring repentance. It's not from us. So um, we'll talk about that next week. But I think the beginning of the gospel, on the one sense, despite all I said about how I think this is, this is really referring to his whole book, at the same time, I think the beginning of the gospel to, a, to us is repentance first, <coughs> told to us in the Old Testament that it was coming, and ushered in by John's ministry, and then the gospel message of Jesus that saves us from our sins. So we'll talk about that next week. Sorry it got so dragged out today. Any, any questions? Boy, it's a fast gospel. I, I think we'll go a lot faster through the book than just one verse each week, but um, it is the first verse of the book, so we can spend time on it. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, thanks. We'll see you next week.